a popular jingle rang in the hearts and minds of uh, a lot of basketball fans back in the 90s. It had to do with a superstar NBA player. Y'all remember the song, Like Mike? If I could be like Mike. Come on, folks. Surely you heard that. As a matter of fact, uh, for Gatorade, in their 50th year anniversary of having produced Gatorade, they resurrected If I Could Be Like Mike, and so they even honored him in that frame of reference. And I played high school and a little college basketball from 88 to about 92, something in that area. Well, I'm telling them 80, 85 or so up. And uh, even before Michael Jordan became Michael Jordan, we, we saw that he wore a wristband on his elbow. So guess what? We had to be like Mike even before then. So Mike-likeness was a huge thing for us growing up. Little kids even today will get down like Nathan down in the basement and you'll hear that goal down there. Boom! Boom! And he's trying to be like Mike, you know, dunk the ball or whatever on a little short goal, you understand. And for white kids, <laughs> that's all we could usually reach is the short, <laughs> short goal. But, but regardless of who your model was as a child, every adult believer will remind you that if you're saved and even you're a child, you have an adult standing in heaven. So if you're a believer... The goal of every Christian should be to imitate the same model, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your model. The goal of the Christian is to be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like Him. So Luke will describe for us at this particular time in the text a remarkable Christ-like man, Stephen, and his ministry and whose martyrdom is going to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth by his life and ministry, what he preached, and his, his martyrdom in the text. You'll see that God is going to use that to push the gospel outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So here's the thing about Stephen. He's so much like Jesus. He was empowered like Christ. He will exemplify God-ordained wisdom like Jesus. He will endure a trial like Jesus. He will preach the word like Jesus. And he will even die like his master. It's an awesome text of scripture. It's going to take us a few sermons to get all the way through what the Bible has to say about Stephen. But I think it's important before we read to think about something. Why would Luke spend so much time on Stephen and the sermon that he preached? You take un- understand something. The two pillars of preachers in the book of Acts would be Peter and Paul. But when it comes to Stephen's sermon, it is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. That's amazing. Uh, the writer, Luke, is going to spend more time on what Stephen said, his trial, the accusations against him, and the preaching of the word, what he had to say to the people that day. Luke is going to spend so much time on it, and I think there's a reason for that. The reason there's so much time on the ministry, trial, sermon, defense, uh, his defense, the martyrdom, is because this particular person and this particular sermon holds incredible theological significance. It's going to hold such an incredible theological significance for you even this morning. Because of Stephen's preaching and because of his martyrdom, you're here today. 
Were it not for the gospel being pushed outside of Judeo, Christ, Judeo principle, uh, the temple area in Jerusalem, we'd have never heard the gospel. So aren't you thankful that God would use a man like Stephen? Not only is he going to challenge their concept of holy space, sacred space, and that's theologically significant, and we're going to track through that in the Bible as we study this, but there's also this issue of it being an earth-shaking catalyst for missionary activity that we will see carried all the way through the book of Acts. And I dare say there's still a catalyst today looking back at Stephen. Uh, Some of the people in this church that served lifelong on the mission field served because of the example of Stephen in the scriptures. Because Stephen will make an impact on men like Tertullian who said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And Stephen was the first seed sawn into the souls and hearts of people where the gospel would move forward. You had men like David Brainerd who died at 29 years of age preaching the gospel to the Native Americans. And David Brainerd would make a huge impact upon Jonathan Edwards. And he would write his memoirs, but chock full of those memoirs were issues about Stephen and his faithfulness to God. And then you know Jim Elliott in the 50s was incredibly encouraged by this particular line of thinking. So... We're still benefiting today, missionary speaking, uh, because of the life of Stephen. So, remember, the charges are going to be brought against Stephen. And these charges are going to become the basis of what he has to preach to them. Isn't it incredible to get charged with something? You turn it around and preach a sermon to them based upon the accusations being made. So, as we track through the text... I'm going to get you to the application, and you've learned me enough to know in the book of Acts that I usually give you the heavy stuff at the very end, right? And that's going to happen somewhat here, because the best way to preach a narrative is to preach the narrative. Preach the story. Let the Word speak. But what we'll see is the fact that God first wants you to think about what a servant He is. And then we'll think about the opposition to Him. And then we'll think about the accusations made. And then there are four accusations. We'll take them apart. And then when we get to the end, I want to talk about the message and the messenger. That's kind of where we're headed. But the overall concept or theme of Stephen's sermon will be this issue of sacred space. Or where does God actually dwell? That's a good question, isn't it? Where does God actually dwell? And at the end of the sermon, he's going to stand as a prophet in continuity with the Old Testament preachers. And he's going to stand against them and their unbelief. And he's going to stand so with judgment. And of course, you know how the chapter ends. Stephen dies. Seeing Jesus high and lifted up, he's going to be martyred for the faith. I want to remind you that it's not uh, the fact that Stephen taught them in the synagogue that he was killed. The reason he was killed was because he preached Jesus. That's the reason for it. Now, let's look at the text. Are you ready? Beginning in verse 8. Of Acts chapter 6. Remember, Stephen is the first deacon mentioned in Acts 6. He gets a little bit of commentary in Acts 6, verse uh, 5. But now the pickup is in verse 8. Are you ready for the reading? Amen. Are you all asleep today? Long weekend. Well, I'll preach it twice. You better listen. Here it is. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. There's your servant, right? That's your explanation of the witness, Stephen. Now, then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. 
I mean, all's good right now, right? Good argumentation is not a bad thing. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Uh, one translation says they couldn't cope with him. I mean, the guy's just full of Jesus and full of wisdom. Verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard from him, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Man, don't you love verse 15? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow, what an awesome text. Now, let's talk about Stephen as God's servant, beginning in verse 8. The Bible says he was full of grace and power. Again, the first description comes back in chapter 6, verse 3. And it says that these men were full of the Spirit and wisdom. In verse 5, it says that he was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, it says he was full of grace and power. He has incredible Christian character. He has an incredible Christian testimony. What does the description full of grace mean? Well, I would say that it certainly means that he was saved by grace through faith. He was a man not saved by his works, but when Stephen heard the word as the gospel was proceeding through uh, Jerusalem in that area, he was one that the grace of God reached out and grabbed him. But I think it means more than that. I also think it means that he was, there was something gracious about him. He had a graciousness about his personhood. In other words, he reminded people of Jesus. He was Christ-like. The grace of God was flowing in his life. The grace of God was operative in his life. He was not a man of rancor or abrasiveness. I can't picture Stephen going into the temple with his fist clenched, just looking for an argument for any Jew that looked at him cross-eyed, right? That's not the kind of man he was. He was not looking for an argument. He was full of power. Not only was grace operative in his life, but the Holy Spirit of God was operative in this man's life. And the scripture says that he was doing signs and wonders. He will not get in trouble because of the signs and wonders. Everybody wants to be healed, right? What's going to get him in trouble is his teaching. He's going to teach the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his Lord as he was commanded to do so. The emphasis upon signs and wonders sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? For this particular time, why? Because God was bringing all the attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his ability to change not only the outward, uh, outside of someone physically, but the inside of someone spiritually. It's interesting that Luke is giving us this, this issue about Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit and power. What do you know about Stephen? He was not an apostle. Is that right? Uh, if we run of the mill guy who actually becomes a deacon, but he's not an apostle. And I think it's very important for you to remember that Stephen is not an apostle. And we see the apostles preaching and witnessing, but now we see a deacon saved by grace through faith, and he's witnessing. So I'm reminding you that it's not just a professional's job to witness. And I think Luke wants you to know that here's a man who was saved by grace through faith, who becomes a deacon, yet he's a Christ witnesser. He is witnessing for the cause of Christ. 
And so witnessing is for all of God's people. Isn't it great that Blake starts off uh, our service today talking about witnessing for Jesus? I want to remind you that for virtually a thousand years, the gospel was in bondage because of the Holy Roman Catholic Church when they thought that witnessing, whatever that meant for them, was in the domain of the priesthood only. No one was encouraged to read the Word of God. And thank God for somebody like William, William, William Carey who forcefully went before church leaders and said, you know what? It's not just the professional's responsibility to carry Jesus to the ends of the earth. It's every born-again believer. And you know, we're guilty of that sometimes in First Baptist Church of Ozark, thinking that the witnessing is the professional's responsibility, i.e. the preacher. Folks, I want to remind you that it's your responsibility to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. It's your responsibility to witness to your neighbor. It's your responsibility to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, that's who this guy is. Boy, that's something we'd like to emulate, right? Full of grace. Full of power. The grace of God was operative through his life, and the Holy Spirit of God was operative in his life. Here's the opposition. You got these, let's track quickly. You got these freed men. Um, and who are these guys? Well, they were Jews that had been taken under Roman bondage and, and, called, and, and slavery, but now they've been freed. Okay? That's who these people are. So they would have been extremely zealous for Jewish customs, for Jewish liberation. Scholars debate over how many synagogues are mentioned here. It really doesn't matter a whole bunch. The main point is that they gathered against Stephen. Cyrenians, Alexandrians would have been from North Africa. Then we have Cilicia and Asia. Tarsus was in Cilicia. That's interesting, isn't it? That's where Saul's family was associated and with that synagogue. And Saul of Tarsus at the end of chapter 7 is going to be the very one holding the cloaks of the men who were stoning Stephen to death. And so these freedmen once gained their freedom, they would have returned to Jerusalem and they would have formed their own synagogue and they were known for their zeal and their culture and their race and their customs and their liberty. So we have Stephen full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit. He's engaging these men in the synagogues. He's preaching and teaching them the Word of God. And eventually they get into a theological debate. You ever been in one of those before? And they're debating theology. And in verse 10 informs us that they were incapable of standing against his witness. I love that. The Greek actually says they were not strong enough to stand. The NAS says that they were unable to cope with it. They couldn't handle the Spirit of God operative through his life. They couldn't, they couldn't handle what he was speaking to them. His truth of the Word was so powerful. Gospel-saturated, truth-saturated, knew his Word, and he has the unction of the Holy Spirit upon his life. What's that mean? Well, he's carried along by the testimony of Jesus. He has that unction upon his life, and they can't answer him. Kind of sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? You remember close to the crucifixion? No one challenged him anymore. They didn't even bring up any subject because every time they tried to put him on the horns of a dilemma, he'd just drop a bombshell on them. And they walked away and didn't know what to say. And Stephen sounds a lot like Jesus. He was ministering and speaking in the words of Christ. And then he was also fulfilling the promise of Christ. Remember that? When you stand before men, I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to give it to you how to say it. And he's fulfilling that in verse 11 we begin these trumped-up charges. The witnesses are going to say the same thing about someone else we know of, and his name is 
right? They're going to have a trumped-up trial. They're going to bring up things that are not true. And so this is what they're doing. They say, Stephen is speaking things against God and against Moses, as if Moses is part of the Trinity. That's, that's what they sound like they're saying. He's speaking this against Moses, and our God, and Moses. I'm sure what he did do, Stephen did do, thinking about the trumped-up charges, is he definitely told them about Jesus. That he has to be the object of your faith, not Moses. I'm sure he told them that Christ came to fulfill the entire law. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled all the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He came and died in our place. He became our Passover lamb. But for their mind to elevate Jesus as the object of faith above Judaism or above Moses was blasphemy. Furthermore, he probably said that your belief that you can be saved by your works is condemned. You can't be saved by any work. You've got to be saved by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So for the devout Jew, Moses was the hero of heroes. Why? Because Moses received the law and in turn gave the law to the people. He was actually the law enforcer. So to preach Jesus as the object of one's faith would be in their eyes against Moses. Isn't it fascinating the order of their complaint? It's against Moses and God. As if to say Moses is equal with God. So if Jesus was to be set up by Stephen as God's son or as God in the human flesh, man, that's blasphemy to a Jew, right? And this complaint is absolutely critical. There's no doubt that he was preaching Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And that there was no way to come to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 is much more violent than the previous episodes we've seen, isn't it? I think this time they figured out how to work the crowd. And it was almost like mob violence, much like it was when they cried out, crucify Jesus. These people were committed to the Jewish way of life. And they hated Jesus. They were committed to their way of life and Torah, which is what? The law, instruction. So there's something that is sudden and violent about this mob arrest. Look at the accusations in verse 13. Four of them. He is against this holy place. How dare he say something against the temple? Our holy place. If Jesus Christ is the true temple, and he's the fulfillment of the temple, and the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, and the fulfillment of the priesthood, then the temple would merely be a shadow. And as Hebrews said, it has become obsolete. Amen? So this is, this is not fully understood in the book of Acts until we get to Stephen. And there's this, now this clean break between Judaism and Christianity. Christianity will be its own movement, not tied at all to Jewish synagogues. Why? Because God doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. And that's the point Stephen's trying to make. His message and his sermon will shatter their belief that God is bound to their Jewish sacred space. He will burst their idolatrous thinking of an attachment to a temple and continued traditions of killing all the prophets that told them you better not be tied to the temple like Jeremiah and many, many others. They believed that Jerusalem was where God lived in the temple. And if you really wanted to get close to God, you had to go down to Jerusalem and get near the temple. The Hellenists actually relocated so that they could get close to God. 
So that first accusation would have been very dear to them. Uh, Of course, they're saying he's blaspheming because he's speaking against our holy place. Remember, folks, Hebrews teaches that Jesus Christ fulfilled all the types and shadows of the temple. Aren't you thankful that the true temple has come? Listen to this. In him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of God, of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. Isn't that awesome? All that God is dwells in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to see God, you look at the Son of God. That's what he taught them. Jesus is the final sacrifice. He is the great high priest. And all things before him were shadows. Jeremiah tried to tell him of this. Jesus said to the woman at the well, she said, well, I thought we were supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. And you say we should worship in Jerusalem. Jesus says the day is coming when you'll not worship in either one of these mountains, but you must worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not about the space nor the place. It's about the object of your worship, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, folks, I want to remind you, if you're here today and you're saved, you are the temple of God. You've been bought with a price. And the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You are sacred space. Amen? Not the place in Jerusalem. You are the temple of God. He dwells in you. Wherever the temple of God is, that place is holy. Here's the second accusation. This guy speaking against the law. Once again, it goes back to Jesus, doesn't it? If Jesus came to fulfill the law and to settle the law's demands through his death, then these radical Jews would be very anti-Christ because they are very pro-law. And they would have said, well, Jesus is against the law. Well, if righteousness comes by faith apart from the law or the works of righteousness, then that sounds very anti-Torah. So when you get a grasp on Jesus and what he has done, then we can appreciate Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Listen very quickly. For Christ is the end of the law. Did everybody hear that? For Christ is the goal of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Can you hear Stephen saying something, even though Romans was written after this, for the most part, it had to be written after this. Can't you see Stephen say something like that? Christ is the goal of the law. Folks, you can't be saved by works. I don't care which one you're trying to perform to make it to heaven, you can't be saved that way. And these Jews couldn't take it. The proper perspective is that the law is a schoolmaster. And it points you to Jesus. Shows your sinfulness before God and points you to Jesus. This tormented their soul. Because Stephen was preaching against the law in their opinion. It's Moses. It's tradition. It's customs. It's culture. It's race. Stephen, Abraham's blood is coursing through our veins. Don't that make us saved? No, it doesn't. The only thing that can make a Jew completed, I don't care what their nationality is, is if they trust Jesus as their Lord. That's the only way. Here's the third accusation. We heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this temple. You know, again, that's kind of false information, isn't it? Because what Jesus actually says in John 2, 19 is that destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And we we get commentary in verse 20 and he was speaking of what? His own body. Go ahead and destroy it. I'll raise it up in three days. And then in Matthew 24, the disciples are marveling at the temple. And what does Jesus say? Behold, I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left upon another. So the basic thinking was very inflammatory to the Jews everywhere. Because this Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple. 
And why? Because there were previous desecrations of the temple, right? In 167 and in 63 B.C. So this was incendiary speech. It's the stuff they couldn't take, take. The temple stood as their religion. The temple stood for race and culture and above all sacred space. Here's the fourth accusation. He's changing the customs of Moses that he gave to us. Now, this would not only include the ceremonies, but it would include oral tradition that they clung to, their interpretations. Please remember that in first century Jerusalem, they barely made a distinction between their own customs that they made around the law and the law itself. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you something. I don't mind saying it. That's exactly what Catholics do. They have their book of traditions, and then they have the scriptures. And they say that they're equal, which is already bogus, okay? But then they say, when you really push them, well, what about what the Scripture says here? They will believe their traditions over the Scripture. I've been down this road with with them over and over and over again. When it comes to being saved by grace through faith, they're going to believe their traditions over the Scripture. And this is exactly what's happening here. They had all their customs. You know, folks, they made 16, they made 614 rules and regulations surrounding the Ten Commandments. 614. Can you imagine the bondage of trying to live all these things? Can you imagine them saying, are you telling us we don't have to wash our hands up to our elbows anymore? Which was one of the 614. Are you telling us that uh, we can't do this on the Sabbath or we can't do that on the Sabbath? Remember his disciples eating on the Sabbath? Boy, they can't take it. You telling us we can't travel anymore? I mean, that we can travel on the Sabbath? It's important to remember at this point, that neither Christ, nor the apostles, nor Moses uh, was anti-law. As a matter of fact, none of them were against Moses. As a matter of fact, Moses was a great and wonderful friend. But Hebrews reminds us that Moses is a servant in the house, but Jesus is the son over the house. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Moses is a servant. There's profound continuity between the Old and the New Testament. Why? Moses is a hero to us. He's in the hall of faith. Why? Because he pointed us to Jesus. Moses looked for Jesus. How many of y'all have gone to Moses down here in Branson? Watched it. Ain't that awesome? At the end, when that guy's standing there and he's looking at the scroll and he's saying, Oh, we can't, we can't live this. And out walks Jesus. Boy, that's good, isn't it? You can't live it, but he did. Right? So all of that points to Jesus as the fulfillment. Folks, the Old Testament is a story about Jesus. And he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's why you have the new to remind us of all these truths. Okay. Where was I? No. Think about this. There's something fundamentally flawed. Think about this. With any religious system that is chock full of religious prohibitions. In other words, you've got to do this. And you can't do this in order to be saved. Something's wrong with that. What is the rationale for that? Well, you got people who, who can't eat meat on Friday. Why can't you eat meat on Friday? I don't know. I have no idea why I can't eat meat on Friday, but I can't eat meat on Friday. What? Tell me the rationale behind why you can't eat meat on Friday. Does it say that in the Bible? We're going to get to that. In Acts chapter 10, boy, aren't you thankful for that thing coming down out of the air, that net and holding all that meat? I'm like, amen. Kill it and eat it. 
right? But why do people have this attitude? Well, if I just do this, I'm a good Baptist. Or if I do this, I'm a good Catholic. As long as I'm touching all the bases. Folks, do you understand that that's anti-Bible? Jesus did not come down from heaven because we're pretty good people. He didn't come down from heaven because we can touch all the bases and do. It's not Christ plus your works. If it is, you're lost. It's Jesus only that saves. When you start kicking that out from under people, and they're, they're, uh, they're thinking they're saved by their do's and their don'ts, when you start kicking that straw man down, then those people don't know where to land. They don't know what the rationale is. Everything they held so dear was eroding at their feet. They couldn't take it. They couldn't stand it. Ooh, what about our sacred space? We have the temple. We have the temple. Glory, hallelujah. We have the temple. Well, what about the law? And he, now he's dissing Moses. They couldn't take it. So, verse 15. Please, by all means, forget what your TV tells you about an angel and what it looks like. Stephen's cheeks did not become chubby. Nor did he get kinky, curly hair. The point is, these men, men are captivated. And if you're a Bible student, if you're a Bible student, you know where I'm headed right here. His face was like the countenance of an angel. Well, there was just one fellow who went up on a mountain one time. He happens to be in this text. Yes, and he met with God. And the Bible says that when he came down, he had to veil his face because the glory of God was all over him. People couldn't hold, they couldn't take it. They couldn't even look at him. And here now, and here's the theological representation that's so vital. As God's presence and favor was upon Moses in the giving of the law. God's favor and presence was upon Stephen as he interpreted the law. The law was interpreted like this. It cannot save you. Only Jesus who fulfilled the law and lived it in 100% obedience and then took your debt to Calvary's cross. He's the only one that can save you. And when they looked upon him, poor, what great, profound continuity. He looks like Moses looks. Angelic in his Appearance. Why? Because Stephen was communing with God. And he was speaking the truth. And so it is. It was all over his face that he belonged to the Lord. Their hardness of heart, their wicked unbelief, caused them to pry their gaze off him and try to kill him. Just think about that. That's what unbelief will do. Unbelief is a killer every single time. Now, think of two things and we're done. Whew, I'm doing great. The message... It's in your notes. The message, Stephen's message, was forcing the issue with Judaism. The temple was obsolete. The sacrifices were obsolete. Why do you need a temple when Jesus is the true temple? Why do you need a sacrifice when he already has made the ultimate final sacrifice? The law had been fulfilled. Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but that through his life he might fulfill the law. And here's what they're teaching. Works righteousness is inherently wrong. So you've got to be saved, folks. If you're here this morning and you think anything you do qualified you for heaven and you think that you're living your life based upon the fact that when you get to heaven your good will outweigh the bad, then you're going to split hell wide open. There is not one person that will ever enter heaven that will enter there because of their good works. I don't hear any amens. If you think coming to this church qualifies you for heaven, you're missing the gospel. 
If you think that being a deacon or a church member or a Sunday school teacher or being good to people, be, even being morally right out in the community and doing good dealings with people, that will not qualify you for heaven. Pharisees were good moral people. As a matter of fact, you remember what Jesus said? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall by no means enter heaven. Oh, folks, nobody was more righteous on outward appearance than the Pharisees. But what Jesus was saying is you've got to have my righteousness. You've got to have my righteousness given to you. So if you present the gospel of Jesus Christ in the fullness and the freeness of the grace of God, in the simplicity, in the gospel so simple? It's so simple. It is an indictment against all fabricated works-based religions in the world. And every religion in this world that is not based upon by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ is a wrong religion. I don't mind saying that. If I go to jail, I go to jail. There's only one true religion. By the way, religion is man seeking after God. Christianity is God coming down to save you. There's a major difference in those two. So when we start talking about Jesus Christ as the exclusive object of our faith, the one who died on the cross for sinners, the one who lived the perfect life on, on earth that we could never live, the one who died and the one who rose again, when we present it that way, the one who ascended into heaven is coming back, it's an indictment against man-made religion. And I want to remind you of something. The response is often violent. Okay, that's the message. And let's talk about the messenger and we're done. He stayed close with God, didn't he? He was full of the Holy Spirit and power. His sermon was saturated with Scripture. You ever had somebody say, well, why do you believe that? And you say, well, it's somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> I, I remember the thought, but I can't tell you what verse. Isn't it awesome when you're witnessing with someone and they say, well, I think if... Uh, if the good outweighs the bad down the line, and I've treated people kindly, I'm going to go to heaven. And you can spit out, for by grace are we saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Or this verse, by the works of the law will no man ever be made right with God. Whew, that's pretty strong, isn't it? If we can give those verses, well, here's Stephen, and he's Bible-saturated. As a matter of fact, he's going to preach the Old Testament to them. In its entirety. We're going to get to see how, how Stephen preached the Old Testament in order to teach them the truth. He was full of faith and power and grace. His sermon was perhaps one of the best sermons ever preached. In the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit. You could not ask for anything else as a messenger from God, right? To preach his truth and the power and being operative in the Holy Spirit of God. And Stephen will win every argument. Right? He's going to leave him in the dust. He will preach exactly what God called him to preach, but he won't win the crowd. Y'all see that? I mean, the goal of this sermon is not to get everybody to come in and feel the warm fuzzies. His goal was not to make First Baptist Church go from 600 to 1,500. Back 20 years ago, if you were a Southern Baptist preacher and you couldn't make the church grow, they fired you. Or people were breathing down your neck and throat saying, why can't you make the church grow? And I reminded myself years ago, Jesus said, I'll build my church. Folks, that takes me off the hook. But what has God asked me to do? He's asked me to preach the word. And when Stephen preached the word, not one soul turned to Christ. They wanted to kill him. You understand how flawed our thinking is today? How that we think we can just, we want to do everything we can to, to get a bunch of people in the church. And I do pray that we grow this church. 
God grows His church. But I want Him to grow it by saving people's soul. Not by us trying to figure out some kind of way that we can draw a crowd. And, and subtract away from the preaching of the Word. So it's the greatest sermon perhaps ever preached. And it was not accepted by the crowd. I'm telling you, when we preach the Word in pure spiritual power, we might be martyred. Here's what I've learned. I've got to leave the results up to God. He's the one that has to take the word and affect the change in people's lives. Maintaining a spirit-filled, godly witness does not always guarantee positive results. You remember what the word says in 1 Corinthians? To those who are being saved, the gospel is the aroma of life unto life. What an awesome fragrance it is to smell the gospel, right? If you're saved, you like that smell. But if you're lost today, then that smell of the gospel is an aroma of death unto death for those who are perishing. We are not in control of who is saved and who is perishing, but our God is. One of the greatest grace-filled sermons ever preached was met with rejection and then murder. It's amazing, isn't it? Unbelief is like that. If you're in unbelief this morning, you need to come to Jesus. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, it can't be any clearer that it's not through the law that we're saved. It's not through sacred space. God, You dwell in us if we know You personally. Lord, it's not through customs and race. Lord, it's through grace that we're saved. Lord, I would pray this morning that a soul would turn to you before it is everlastingly too late. And Lord, let this be a model for us believers in this room of what a servant witness looks like. He's been with Jesus, communes with Him, grace-filled person, operative through the Spirit of God working in his life, wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Lord, shared the gospel forthrightly. Lord, I pray what, that we would learn this, that we'd be willing to put our faith on the line for you because you deserve it. May our life and witness resemble yours like Stephen's. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.